there's a, um, there's a, a pastor, a teacher that I know some of you are aware of called Thabiti Anyabweli. Um, he lives and serves in the Cayman Islands. It's hard life, but someone's got to, haven't they? And um, he, he writes this in a book about the church. He says this. Think with me for a moment. What would you say is the only power on earth that can destroy church? He says, clearly it's not the powers of hell because Jesus promised the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. He says the power is not persecution. Sometimes despite persecution, kings and powers and authorities, the Lord has been pleased to to use persecution to purify and to grow the church. He says the power is not false teachers. From the time of the apostles, false teachers have entered the church and taught heresies, but they won't finally prevail over the church. He continues, as I thought about this question, the only power on earth that I could think of that could destroy the church is Christians, at least professing Christians. Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, a collection of Christians like us, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. The most serious problem I can think of facing the church is continual strife, Argument and fighting, the end of which is self-destruction. It's ironic, Christians may succeed in doing what Satan and all of his forces are powerless to do. It's a very striking thought, isn't it? The importance of, of unity in the local church. As Andy said, you've joined us partway through a a series in Ephesians. And what we've been seeing, the story so far, is that God has has reconciled a divided humanity to himself under the cross. And as he does that, we see his wisdom in the gospel on display to a watching cosmos. He he said last time it was a multicoloured, a multifaceted plan, a beautiful plan that involves little churches... In communities around the world, reconciled people changing the world through these little communities of reconciliation. But but what happens then when churches squabble? What happens when you moan to your colleagues, your friends, course mates, family about that person in your home group? Or, Or her just sat over there or that elder you don't quite get on with or whatever it is. It's not just a relationship, sadly, that's broken down. It's, it's worse than that. As we divide and as factions develop and, and disunity reigns, so, so in the church something cosmic is happening. We are ruining what the gospel has achieved. Jesus on the cross buys unity. We, through our squabbles, bring disunity. We undo his work. We, we resurrect dividing walls of hostility. We separate people who have been brought back together. And so the church looks in at, sorry, the world looks in at churches and say, well, look, you're just like us. You just hang about with people like us. You squabble and fight like we do. You faction yourself off into different groups which are just like you. You're just like everybody else. And now we'll see in a bit that we're not to be clones, we won't always agree, won't always be easy, but it does mean as we think through what it means to be church, we must value and prize unity. Because it's God's wisdom 
for the cosmos. I think actually unity is the main application from Ephesians. So if chapters 1 to 3 is about what Christ has achieved through the cross in bringing unity, then 4 to 6 is, well, live that out. Don't destroy the unity that he's won for you. So two points for this morning. Verses 1 to 6, keeping up our unity. If you're a note taker, verse 7 to 16, it's growing up in unity is the second point. But for now, the first one, 1 to 6, keeping up our unity. You are united in Jesus. Now live that out. How? 4 verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This isn't just a hobby for Paul. This isn't something he takes lightly. The gospel is important. To live out his calling for him means being stuck in prison. For us, it means being willing to put others first. I think someone said there are two major threats of peace being lived out at Magdalen Road. Two major threats. One is me, and the other is you. Because we've still got our egos, and our agendas, and our hurts, and our thoughts on how stuff ought to be done, and our prejudices, and our bitterness from the past. And so Paul's recipe for peace, for people like us, humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church like that? Where that is the prevailing church culture. That is how we treat each other. A culture that flows from not just having grasped the gospel as, well, this is how I'm right with God, but grasping that as our culture as well. This is how we treat each other. Setting the tone in, in how we deal with grievances or disagreements. Humble. To be humble is to to not think too highly of ourselves, but to think greatly of him, of his people, of his power. It's to have that knee-jerk reaction that asks, what's best for us in this? Not just what's best for me, but for us. It's to be sober and honest about our own failings our frustrations, our weaknesses, and so to grasp his kindness and his grace, his goodness. And if we're humble, then we'll be gentle. Because you see, if we're humble and we're aware of our own mistakes and what our hearts are like, then we'll be gentle with other people, won't we? When they get it wrong, when they criticise me, when they rub me up the wrong way, I will be gentle with them. Because I know how God treats me. Friendships, families, home groups, a church culture where we are gentle with each other. Patience. To be patient, I take it, is to grow a longer fuse. We're willing to bear with people who are quite different from us. We're willing to forgive them again. 
Even though they promised they'd change, even though they promised they wouldn't do it again, even though they promised they would try harder, or they would bite their tongue, and they've not, then we forgive. Because that's what God is like with us. I wonder as well whether the prayer that the children looked at from chapter 3 is really important in this. I wonder it's when we grasp something of the height and the breadth and the width and the depth of Christ's love for us. When we really grasp that, then we have the resources to show that to others, to live like that, to truly love them with this sort of extraordinary, boundless love of Christ. If we're just trying to make ourselves do it, I don't think that works. But if we've received it ourselves first, then there's always more love for us to be giving out to others. It's pretty hard to do, isn't it? It's pretty hard when there are people like us, let alone if there is the diversity that seems to come from Ephesians. Remember we've said in previous weeks you've got probably Jewish background Christians and Gentile background Christians wrestling to, to love each other. How do we do that? Very different. Chalk and cheese. Think of cultural practices. Think of the food they eat, the clothes they wear, the company they keep. And Paul says, bear with one another in love. And if you're anything like me, you squirm a bit and say, well, does it matter that much? Seriously, can't I just sort of slip off somewhere else and find a church that's a bit more like me? You can imagine in Ephesus the discussions in church meetings, well, why don't we just have an amicable, friendly split? Do you go and start a sort of Gentile background church? you go and start a Jewish background church? We'll all be happy. The ministry will be multiplied. But Paul says, no, bear with one another in love. Look at how one you are Verse 3 to 6. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You are not two bodies, you are one body. And so he quotes what's probably a a hymn or a song or a baptismal confession of some sort. Last time, you share in the Holy Spirit of promise. You are one. You are a temple together. You have one hope together, one faith. You reflect something of the unity of God, one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. So so make every effort to keep that unity. Prize unity, value unity, love unity. Because it shows God's wisdom to the cosmos. It matters. That's a big old challenge for us at the moment at Magdalen Road. A number of reasons why that might be the case. It matters because although some have already gone in the near future, there will be a bunch of people here who will help Peter go and set up a church in the centre called Trinity Church. Matters because probably slightly further afield, there are another bunch of people involved in planting Cowley Church community up the road. And so keeping a loving unity amongst people who will quite likely be in quite different churches in the next few years is a very important thing to wrestle with. Unity is vital as well as we think about buildings. Buildings. 
Some of you will know, behind the scenes, we've been doing various bits of research and work into the possibility of a large building that might come up in the vicinity um, in the months or years to come, somewhere we can perhaps more effectively reach East Oxford, Oxford, the world, somewhere we can fit all in on a Sunday with sort of space to grow. We're looking pretty full this morning. Somewhere that's a permanent presence for us in the locality, where we can bless the local community, where we can be a hub, doing some of the things that we think God is calling us to do, perhaps in training and discipling and sending and planting. But that costs money. And when we start talking money, that's a great opportunity for disunity. But make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I think it's striking too, as you read this in, in Ephesians, because the commentators tell us this was probably a letter written... To, to more than just one congregation. It's likely there are different congregations through Ephesus. The letter will be passed around to different people. And so while some of these challenges in Ephesians are particularly for a local church, a church like us, there's an interesting slant when we think about the currency possibly for between congregations too, between churches too. Churches within Ephesus within Oxford. Because it's very easy to lack humility and gentleness and patience and love and just see them as kind of competition rather than family. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Later on in the service, we will be praying for some other churches in Oxford. We've I guess, contacts from different staff teams around Oxford. A number of churches have replied thankful for us to be praying for them. And so we will do that as we seek to show them love, seek to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So firstly, 1 to 6, keeping up our unity. He's reconciled a people together. Now live that out. Guard it. Second one, 7 to 16, growing up in unity. And the picture in verse 10 It seems to be Jesus, the victorious, conquering king. He is triumphant, and so he is showering down gifts on his people, showering down gifts on the church. He's given the church what it needs, so verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He's given us grace. Or verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Now, we could talk lots about those gifts, in particular in verse 11. Um, I want you to notice, just for now, the similarities and the differences that seem to come out from these key gifts there. And it seems to me, at heart, these gifts are all word gifts. Foundationally, they are to do with speaking, with proclamation, with truth. So when we walked out on God at the beginning, when we said to God, we don't want you in charge anymore, we threw off the shackles of God's loving word over us. We didn't want to bow the knee to him. We didn't want to listen to him anymore. We sinned. We didn't want to live under his word. And so as a reconciled humanity brought together in church, we have his word back over us again. We have a God who speaks. So we have a God who equips his church 
with words. Foundational word gifts. Words that bring life and growth and vitality, maturity, direction, unity. We shouldn't be surprised at that. Because it is his job that we are doing. This is God's plan, the church. So he will equip his church for what it needs. Imagine, imagine I were to ask um, my children to cook some kind of romantic meal for Zoe and I. I don't know if you know them, but if you were to imagine that, just to give them a sort of blank sheet of paper, it would be utter chaos. It really would. Ellie would um, include vegetables and fruit because that's what she loves and she could eat that all day. Barney would, invo- would use the oven because there's fire. <laughs> Josh likes to pour drinks, spill drinks. Abby, Peppa Pig spaghetti, she's happy. So it would be chaos, but then if I would, there would be squabbles as well over the world. Who's doing what and what are we having and how do we do it and when do we do it? And you can just imagine the sort of disunity, the chaotic nature of trying to get them in the kitchen. But if I were to say, okay guys, romance out the window, how about fish fingers, chips, beans? Could you cook that for us? And Ellie, can you open the freezer? Can you get stuff out? Can you turn the oven on? Barney, can you put the stuff in ever so carefully? Josh, here's a can opener. Here's some beans. Give it a go. (laughs) We'll have them cold. Abby, you get to choose the drink. And after last time, no candles. Thank you. So you see, it might, might work when there is order, when there is instruction, when there is word, things work. And the church is God's plan to fix a broken world. So he gives us his word for that to work. It must be rooted in and grown from his word. And when we know and experience and enjoy the God of the Bible, and we know what he's doing, when we know how he works, what he's like, well, so his people are equipped. They are maturing. They are serving. They are growing. He gives us gifts to enable that. So there are similarities, but secondly, there are differences as well. And people differ on this, but I take it if you track back to particularly 2.20 and uh, 3 verse 5, you see apostles and prophets being foundational gifts, either of the church or a church. Um, People would differ on that. But the evangelists and the pastor teachers, it seems to me, are more sort of everyday gifts. Evangelists who spread the gospel. Pastor teachers who apply the gospel. Striking, God doesn't shower down the gift of maturity on his people. And he, he wants us to grow together to do that. And so he gives us the stuff we need to make that happen. And what does that uh, community look like, 12 to 13? It looks like a community where people are equipped to serve, where the body is built up in maturity. It looks like a community where, where unity in the faith is evident. community where we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, where we know the Son of God, where we grow. So do note, this is a particular type of unity he's talking about. A table tennis club has unity. 
a, a crochet club has unity. The United Nations has unity. But here Paul is talking about a unity that comes from the word being opened, a spiritual maturity that comes as God speaks. Which I take in Ephesian terms would be something like grappling with and really believing the stuff we've been hearing week by week by week. So perhaps the fundamentals of chapter 1, the Father who selects, the Son who secures, and the Spirit who seals. God's triune plan for his people for the world. Maybe chapters 2 and 3, it's knowing God's truth and living God's truth in the church. But also the maturity that Woody was teaching the children about as well. Something, it's not just what we know in our heads, but it's experiencing the boundless love of Christ. Paul says that's when fullness comes, that's when maturity comes. Not just heads, but hearts as well. So the word is taught and people serve, the body serves. We don't just teach to educate. No, we we want to take care to help one another, to apply it, to live it, to serve together. It's more than just understanding. So pray for people who stand at the front and teach the Bible that we wouldn't just be seeking to to educate you, to give you a, a grasp on a passage but rather to help us as a body together to live it, to serve together. It's one of the reasons when I try and teach week by week by week, I'm teaching from this passage for this people in this place and at this time. I'm not teaching for the internet, although hi if you're listening in. But actually this is contextual. This is God's word applied to us today. If I were to teach the same passage in a month's time, it might be quite different. It's why it's great that so many people in home groups uh, look at the same passage from Sunday, thinking through what it applies, how it applies to their lives. So that as a body together, we might be growing into maturity. Rather than different things being pulled in different directions, together we are growing. Did you twig as well this maturity that Paul talks of? It seems that he expects at least a couple of things to be quite clear and quite obvious. The, the first one, that this maturing body he's speaking of as the word is taught, it will be a maturing body through more words. So there's the foundational words from the front, verse 11, but then look at verse 15. There are these other words happening. Instead, rather than being tossed here and there with immaturity, we will, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Words aren't just for the apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers. We're all speaking, we're all word ministers. Striking, isn't it? We need a kind of church culture where that's okay where it's okay for us to speak truth to one another, where it's okay to speak and apply the gospel into one another's lives. I don't think the speaking the truth in love thing is, well, I'm just, you know, I'm not sure that suit is quite you. I'm not sure that shirt quite suits you. It's more than that. It's more than just being kind of an excuse to be honest. I think the truth is the truth of the gospel. And so it's lovingly helping one another to apply the gospel 
into the nooks and crannies of our lives. It's when you're feeling low on Thursday because work is so hard. And a Christian friend says, do you know what? Keep going. Persevere. Press on it. Don't worry about your boss. Jesus is enough. He is sufficient for you. Find your value and your worth and your identity in him, not in how work is going. So on a Friday, our bodies are falling apart. And so it's reminding them, keep pressing on for the hope of heaven, for the perfect body when we won't suffer. And the new creation happens and broken bodies will be a thing of the past. But when we lack patience on Saturday... Perhaps it's just saying to somebody, you know, I'm not sure how you went off the handle there was quite right. Just reflect on God's kindness to us, his patience to us, his generosity, his graciousness. It's having the kind of culture where we can talk honestly and love honestly and encourage and build up and spur one another on. And also at times it will be to rebuke and to challenge But it means we need to have people around us who can do that. Not necessarily just us being intentional in talking to others and applying the gospel to others. It's being willing for them to do the same for us. It means we don't protect ourselves by having people at kind of arm's length. But actually we let them in. Community of grace. I think this is something actually at Maudlin Road we're getting better at. To give you a case study um, from this week, and the reason I do it is because I'm definitely not the hero. Three conversations this week with people I think who are too busy, and they've said as much. They said, "I'm just doing too much," and, and the reason they have given for their over busyness, the, the diagnosis for why they're suffering in this way, is they said, "I like to please people." And people ask me to do stuff, and I just can't find it in my heart to say no. And so I say yes too often, and the weeks get busier, and then suddenly it's crash. Three people this week have spoken to me about that. Well, I didn't need to, but what would the conversation with them go like? It would go something like, you have perfect identity in Christ. All that he has won for you is yours. He died, you died. He was raised, you were raised. You are forgiven. You're perfect in him. And it's right that you're a part of the body. It's right that people pull our weight, that we serve, that God's given us gifts to one another. But when it's just about pleasing them, then I know from experience we become enslaved to what they think of us and we can't cope and we burn out. So we're a maturing body through words who will grow to become into the mature body of him who is the head. But it's not just about words. Now, it's an oversimplification to say it, but in Oxford, many of us are pretty good with words and ideas and theory. Perhaps we struggle a bit with action. So it's striking that Paul says, you must live it out. We can't just live in the realm of theory. We need to learn to, to land the plane to get things done, to serve. So secondly, it's a maturing body through works. Remember in chapter 2 we said we are not saved by works. We are his work to do good works. 
He has good works prepared in advance for us to do. And I take it, so here are some of those. Verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Or verse 16, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, so each part does its work. God has designed and equipped his body to work, for people to be involved, to to lovingly serve. And as it does that, as we work together, so we mature, so we grow. Now I look at this morning and I see we are not all the same. We are very different. But you know, we are all needed. Because when you're not involved, then we are weaker. When you sort of stick yourself on the fringe and say, I'm just not sure I can be bothered with church at the moment, everyone else suffers. And if you've ever tried to make a cup of tea with a broken arm, But it's really hard. And as people sort of pull out, then it means that we don't work as well. So the whole body grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. A maturing body through works. Now, there's a potentially very dangerous culture, a church culture of of which we're potentially a part, that means people can hang loose to sort of commitment, if you like. So people, people can go their Sunday morning and their Sunday evening and there for their midweek group, and there to socialise with other Christians. And that's okay as long as we're not just consuming. We need to be wary of that. We need to be a part of a body, a real part of a body. I take it Paul's vision is for a diverse people to be united together, serving one another, growing each other up in maturity. Church isn't to be a, a theatre or a performance where you sort of rock up and you watch how it goes and then you head off at the end. Maybe go for another showing somewhere else. But we're all involved. We're all getting stuck in. Some of us are on stage. Some of us are doing the lighting. Some are serving ice creams at the interval. Some are manning the phones in the box office. Some are providing the soundtrack. Some are clearing up afterwards. Some are spending a week making props. Some are coaching and helping things to happen. But we're all needed. That's how God made it. Which means I'd love to say to you, if you're in that sort of trying out church time, um, which we're very used to it in Oxford, just to say one thing to you, please end up at a church where you can be a part of the body, where you can serve. Not just somewhere that will serve you. Not just somewhere that will love you and teach you. Those things are important. But it seems to me God has made church in such a way that we are apart together. And we serve together. If I can be quite blunt, don't be so selfish as to think that we don't need you. Or so proud as to think that you don't need us. We're to be a part of a body together. As I read Ephesians, that seems to me how church works. I want to say one thing as well. I don't want to be controversial. um, But I want to talk briefly about home groups. I love home groups. Home groups practically are an absolutely vital way for us to build relationships together in a slightly larger church. 
So we get into slightly smaller groups midweek and it gets more manageable and we can be honest with each other. James Gregg has done a fantastic job of helping home groups function and work and he organises and facilitates and nags. It's fantastic in a nice way. (laughs) But a word of warning, because there can be a danger with home groups and that is that they become church for us. Actually, Pete was helping us on Monday think through as home group leaders what it means to be a healthy member of a home group. And he was very helpfully just pointing us to the fact that to be a healthy member of a home group means that we are exposing and introducing people to everybody else within the church, to the whole body of life, not just to the ten or so in your home group, but actually to encourage people to be a part of the wider body, encouraging each other to see how we fit in. Paul talks elsewhere about the church being like a literal body with body parts, and it's quite nice to be an elbow and an arm and a wrist and fingers and fingernails. But if we just sort of stick together as that bit of body, then imagine our surprise when we realise there's legs and a torso and different bits together. So let me encourage you as home groups to, to be encouraging one another to be being a part of the wider body the life of the church. I love home groups, but let's keep them mixing, keep them growing. As we finish, I want you to look at verse 15 and 16 again and just notice a really key word that I think ought to flow through everything, through our words and our works. So verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Verse 16, growing and building itself up in love. And so at the end of the passage, we come back to where we began in verse 2. Love. I just think Paul knows our hearts. He knows what we're like. Verse 15, when you speak the truth to another person, when you gospel them, how do you do it? Do you do it arrogantly? Proudly? competitively, in a sort of one, one-upmanship way, harshly, crossly. No, no, we do it in love. Or verse 16, when you serve, when each part does its work and the body grows to maturity, how do you work begrudgingly and crossly and just to tick a box and with a hard heart? No, we do it in love. Because love must be at the heart of a community, a body that's joined to the head who is Christ, who has that extraordinary love for us, high and wide and long and deep. And without love in our words and our works, it can easily become a competition. And we can quickly become disunified. And the gospel can be undermined. Undermined. 